This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Tony Twist of TCM International Institute hosted a track called Disciple Making Theology Matters. Here's the track session from TCM International Institute. So we have Dr. Bates with us. Um, He is Assistant Professor of Theology at Quincy University at Quincy, Illinois. He's many things. Author, scholar, reading poems at Bedtime Father, hiker and passionate baseball fan. Yet above all of this, he is a passionate follower of Jesus Christ. He holds a Ph.D. from the University of Notre Dame in theology. And his books include Salvation by Allegiance Alone, The Birth of the Trinity, and The Hermeneutics of Apostolic Proclamation. In addition to his academic work, he remains actively involved in church, community, and his family life. Dr. Bates. And then Dr. Bobby Harrington. He is the executive director of Discipleship.org, a national forum and ministry that advocates for Jesus' style of disciple-making. He loves, I love this part, by the way. He loves history, hockey, hummus, movies, football, and the Bible and his wife, but not necessarily in that order. (laughs) Dr. Bobby has led many trips to Israel. He loves to study the Bible and go to Israel because it helps him better trust and follow Jesus. He's the founding and lead pastor at Harpeth Christian Church. He is a Bible scholar, an experienced church planner, a coach of church leaders, and he's the author of several books on discipleship, which you can find on his Amazon author page, and he would like to thank you if you've already bought one. (laughs) Um, I love this too. Dr. Harrington studied at the University of Calgary and Regent College, Asbury Seminary, and Harding School of Theology, and Princeton Theological Seminary. He has won camel races in Jordan, Clive diving competitions near Fish Creek, Alberta, chess tournaments in Russia, and he's talked to those who have talked to Elvis. And all of this may or may not be true. (laughs) He has a Doctor of Ministry degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He and his lovely wife, Cindy, treasure spending time with their grown children, their spouses, and their grandchildren. And that part is true. (laughs) And we have Dr. Tony Twist. Dr. Tony Twist serves as the Chief Executive Officer and President of TCM, where he serves in three interrelated areas. He spends time... About one-third of his time investing in development, public relations, and fundraising. Another third is devoted to administration, teaching, writing, and research. And the rest of his time is taken up by providing leadership, planning, and attention to personnel. And for TCM, Tony serves as the professor of leadership and spiritual formation. His academic preparation included a bachelor bachelor's in at Milligan College, a master's of divinity and Emmanuel School of Religion. I'll get it out. And a master's um, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and a PhD from Indiana University. And a few interesting tidbits of information about Dr. Tony. He was born in Texas and raised in Dallas in Alice Springs, Australia. He's also a voting member of the Cherokee tribe and his great-grandfather was a young boy in the Trail of Tears. He married his wife, Suzanne, in 1975, and she has served with him in churches in Virginia, Tennessee, and Indiana, as well as serving in various capacities with TCM. And his work with TCM began in late 1989, and he's even more passionate today about what God is doing through the ministry than ever before. So Dr. Tony Twist. So it is um, my privilege to pray for these gentlemen, and then I believe Tom is coming up. Oh, there you go. 
Um, Father, I thank you so much for this incredible opportunity that you have given us today. And Lord, I thank you for these gentlemen who have given their lives to you. I thank you that you have poured out the power of your Holy Spirit on them, that you have led them um, even to here today, God. And I pray that you will give all of us ears to hear what you would have us say. And Lord, I pray that we will um, humble ourselves under your leadership, God, that we will be the men and women that you have called us to be. And again, I thank you for their ministry, and I pray that you will continue to bless them as they continue to seek you for the rest of their lives. Father, we love you, and it is in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. My name is Tom Sears, and I work, I've been working with Tony for the past three years for TCM International Institute in, at our headquarters in Indianapolis. And we're so excited to sponsor this track, and to see a room full of people just really gets us really gets us excited. So hope we don't disappoint in that area. Now, if there's one thing I think that we that TCM is more passionate about, perhaps than disciple making, that would be uh, prayer. And the Paulette just prayed for our speakers at the beginning of each track or each session in this track. We'd like to just spend a few moments in intentional prayer, not just for what's being talked about here but for discipleship.org, all of the other organizations involved in this forum, and as well as every single ministry, our personal ministry and disciple-making efforts in, in our own lives. So if you, it might be a little hard to kneel in this room, but could we all just stand as I lead us through some, si- some silent prayers? I'm going to bring up three quick topics. And for about 30 seconds each, if you could all just engage the Lord with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul in prayer for these few things. And then after about 30 seconds each, I'll close this at the end and we'll begin. Father, we ask that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you be with discipleship.org and all of the lives that it influences. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work with power through this forum, all of the speakers, in all of the different tracks. And as we just bring a few of those to our mind right now, we pray that you work through them in mighty ways. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would work with power and raise up more leaders of disciple-making movements, impacting their churches, their cultures, and their entire countries for Christ all throughout the globe. And now, Father... We welcome your Holy Spirit to work among us. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Let's be seated. We're so thrilled to be here and to uh, welcome everybody to this session. Uh, When we were talking about putting this session together, one of the things that we, uh, we were discussing was how that So many times we don't connect loving with all our mind. We don't uh, we we don't uh, engage with our best thinking uh, as well as our uh, as well as with our heart. And so, what we want to do in this time is to kind of just have a discussion about why does disciple making theology matter. And we want to think through this together. But a bit of a caveat. With heart, 
mind, soul, strength, our entire being, holistically engaged. I think one of the things I love about disciple making is it is a full contact sport. And it engages our entire being. And I believe theology, rightly understood, is a full contact sport. And so what we want to do is we want to just think together today, but we want to think holistically. And so to begin, I'm thrilled that Matt can be with us today and that Bobby can be with us today. And I'd like to just kind of throw out some things for us to, to have a discussion on. And I guess the first thing would be, as we're starting these movements, why does theology matter? Why is it important? And let me just kick that to you, Bob. Yeah, first. thank you for, for uh, letting me start. Because I'd like to uh, set the context and tell you all something about Matthew that uh, um, you might not know. Uh, in fact, we're really grateful that Matthew was able to come and be with us, but his name is not widely known. Before I tell you about Matthew, I just want to tell you a little bit of background on the, on the conversation that we're having. Um, you know, um, I have spent a lot of time over the years learning different techniques, uh, strategies for disciple making and for church planting. I'm a church planter who's trained church planters uh, and actually uh, helped develop church planting networks. And uh, one day when I was uh, traveling across the United States uh, helping start churches, uh, I had this gnawing feeling in my soul that I wasn't feeling good about the churches that we were planting. They were gathering people, but they weren't changing people. And uh, it led me through a journey where I felt I needed to step down from uh, the church planting organization I was with. And uh, it set me on a journey of really focusing on disciple making. And uh, in the process of learning about disciple making, it drew me back to something that I was always aware of in terms of my own convictions, but I wasn't aware of as much as what I want to tell you now. And uh, I'll sum it up with a simple uh, statement. The Jesus we preach, the gospel we uphold, and the kind of faith we encourage will determine the disciple we get. So, just to unpack that a little bit. Many people are erroneously teaching a Jesus that has a transaction with you. Uh, A Jesus that gives you hell insurance. Uh, If you say, I trust him, or I have mental assent, okay, I believe in him, then he takes away all of your sins and gives you an eternity. That's actually not the Jesus of the Bible. We are saved by grace through faith, but it is not reductionistic like that. Secondly, the gospel of Jesus is different than many versions of the American gospel. It is not a gospel of your best life now, although it may end up being a great life. 
It is not if you trust him, he's going to materially bless you. Uh, it is not a, a, a gospel of um, a thousand different varieties. And the kind of faith that the Bible talks about is not just a mental ascent. As one very well-known writer said, if at one point you gave your heart to Jesus, well, shoot, you can become a Satan worshiper and you're still going to go to heaven. That Jesus, that gospel, and that faith is not what the Bible teaches. So, the first order of business in um, church plant, I'm sorry, in disciple making, is for the, <clears throat> the leaders of a church, better yet, the men and women who want to make disciples, that we make sure it's the real Jesus, the real gospel, and the real elements of faith that we're passing on to other people. And I'm so proud of all of you for being here because um, I've been in environments where I don't understand personally why this conversation isn't the first and most important conversation. And the fact that this room is filled with people is a great testament to some depth on, on your parts. And uh, I'm going to turn the question over to Matthew now, and just before I do that, tell you a little bit about the conversation that he's entered into. We probably wouldn't all agree with uh, Matthew's book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, but it's a very important book for this conversation because it advances the conversation significantly in our country. A little bit of context. Um, thoughtful Christians in North America have struggled with the nature of faith that is propagated that leads to cultural Christians and consumer Christians rather than true disciples of Jesus. And to get at the issue of faith that I've been describing, Matthew's trying to help us do that. John MacArthur tried to do that in the late 1980s from one perspective, and Matthew's entered into the conversation, and I would encourage all of us to consider what he's saying for help in this matter. So with that, Matthew, yeah, throw it over to thank, you. Thanks for the, yeah, the introduction. And, uh, Bobby's a great collaborator. He brings together wonderful people for wonderful conversations <coughs> and is obviously a savvy theologian <coughs> in his own right. Um, so it's a real privilege to get to be here with you and to think through this question of why theology matters. Um, uh, it matters deeply to me because I, theology is the study of God. Right? and um, the study of how we properly relate to God. And ultimately, that's the end game. Right? We, need to, we need to know God and be known by him, um, and we have to do our best thinking. Right? Our hearts have to be deeply engaged uh, with all that we have in this task. Um, and if we're not encountering God when we worship, not encountering God as we ourselves are um, doing our best to be disciples, but some sort of pseudo-God of our own making, then as we transmit that on, um, well then... Uh, just the distortion gets passed along, right? So I'm convinced that being a disciple of Jesus means ultimately being conformed to his image, right? That that's, um, that's the great hope that we have and that we see significant progress for that in this life, right? As we're getting closer and closer to the image of Christ as we gaze on him, who is the image of God the Father, right? And so all of this then is 
uh, of movement toward God. Of um, that's the great mystery, right? We oftentimes think of humans and God as like we're sort of opposites. Like we just mess up all the time, and God is perfect. But that's a sort of stingy idea about who God is, right? God is not like that. God has this overflowing love that He actually wants us to become like Him. We never cross over the, the creature creator divide. We never become God, right? That would be a you know a, a damning mistake, quite literally. Um, but on the other hand, um, we can become conformed to His image, and that's a that's just a, a marvelously wonderful good news. And I think so so often as we think about the gospel. Um, when it becomes something that's all about the sort of eternal fire insurance or whatever you want to call it, getting to heaven in this sort of vague way, uh, we miss the opportunity to share with people what is good and what is beautiful and what is true about what Jesus does for us right now as we are being transformed day to day, right? This, um, this power and weakness sort of thing that's happening to us that we realize, although we're broken, Nevertheless, the Holy Spirit's moving through us, right? And we're getting closer to the image of Christ. So theology matters deeply because I think that we have to, um, we have to think well about God. Um, and uh, we have to do so for our own sake, but also for the sake of the world. If you wouldn't mind, could you, would you share with us just a little bit on, on how, how, you, how you do that? How do you love God with your mind? Are there sort of some maybe practical things we could take away that in your own relationship that you could, if you wouldn't mind, just sharing yeah. with us ways that you you love him with your mind more? That's a great question. I don't know that I'm an expert on it any more than anyone else. Um, you know, I, I have the luxury of being a theology professor, um, but of course that means I spend a lot of time shuffling and grading papers and dealing with student absences and uh, it's not like I have my spiritual or mental house all in order. Um, but yeah, I, I think for me, um, not being afraid to ask big questions um, has always been important. That, um, that God is big enough to handle these sorts of questions and to study philosophy and to, to, to look at the very difficult issues of creation and evolution and whatever it might be, but to not be afraid to kind of plunge into those. Um, in terms of, you know, like overall orientation, I'm thinking about the mental life in that way. Um, uh, sometimes Christians, I think, can kind of be afraid, like, I, I don't want to be misled, right? I'm going to stay in the safe area. And I think that we need to explore these big questions, but partly do so by gravitating to those who we feel confident have blazed the trail already, right? That we see uh, people who, by the fruit of their life, by the, the, the quality of their walk with Jesus, that there's something true and, and real and good, and they've been able to navigate through um, some of these very difficult, tricky issues, and that we can sort of follow in their wake and learn from them, right, as we don't have to do it on our own. Um, so I think finding good mentors, uh, in people who have written excellent books, and uh, you can kind of learn to see things through, through, through their eyes. Um, for, for me, I guess that's, that's sort of important. Um, my own, in my own personal devotional life, um, I've always felt for my own mental um, energy before God, um, fixing on scripture passages and mental images are very important, like having that as an anchor point. Um, even in the middle of the day, like you might have an image in your mind um, remembering, Jesus, you are the vine. And that uh, even in the midst of the busyness of the day, being able to come back after maybe a busy encounter with students or whatever, to, to be able to come back and recenter on an image uh, that Jesus, you are the vine, and that I'm being nourished and discipled by you all the time. Um, 
that's important for me mentally. Um, that's, that's kind of a blend of spiritual and mental, um, mm-hmm. I suppose. But yeah, I'd love to hear you guys comment on that. Well, let me just jump in here because I'd like to sort of set the stage better. Um, not better. I'd like to just uh, tag on uh, with the stage. We live in a time in a postmodern uh, world where people are increasingly saying it's too confusing. I can't figure it out. There's people on this side and there's people on that side. And so what they're then saying is it doesn't matter. Rather than doing the hard work of saying there are people on that side and there are people on the other side, but I'm actually going to do the hard work of trying to say, God, what's really true? And it, it actually uh, requires some mental rigor and a willingness um, to do differently than a lot of people are increasingly doing. Is it okay if I Because I feel like there's people in the back I can't see. Okay, I'll stay here. Um, let, me, let me just say uh, what's happening more and more today. Uh, we're abandoning uh, confidence in, in uh, rationality. Uh, now, let me tell you why I think we're abandoning it. I, I think in, a, in the world that was, that we're moving out of, there was overconfidence in what you could know. Uh, the, the field is called epistemology. It's how you know what you know. And there was overconfidence that we knew things, Right. And so what we have is a millennial generation that's rising up and they're saying, you guys, you baby boomers, you way overstated what you know. Your categories and your, uh, uh, the way you structure everything is actually not true. You made it up. And to some extent, they're right. And now what they're saying is, well, there's this view and there's that view. And so what's happened is it's become okay more and more that my feelings guide me rather than good thinking guiding me. I feel this, or I just think it should be that way, uh, which is really dangerous. And uh, there's a passage that I think is really important from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. I'm uh, going to start in verse 3, because Paul is describing uh, actually the discipleship of the mind. Uh, and, and there's other passages, Romans uh, chapter 12, be renewed by the uh, transforming of your minds. Uh, but he puts it this way, and I, I really like the way he does it here, because he's about to say that spiritual warfare is actually the battlefield of your mind. Not of how you feel, but of how you, what you believe and what you think. And so it's going to say that theology matters a lot. Here's what he says. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. What? Okay, we live in the world and there's a war going on. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. So back then it wasn't, you know, spears and swords and um, chain mail. He says, on the contrary, talking about the weapons we have, on the contrary, they, our weapons, have divine power to demolish strongholds. So he's talking about that in the minds of people are spiritual strongholds. They're ways of thinking. We demolish arguments and every pretension 
that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So there's arguments, there's, there's ways of thinking about life. There are pretensions in our, the way we think about life, the way we think things are, there's ways of thinking about that, and every culture has them, that are actually tied in with spiritual forces that are against God. What? I mean, that's what the text is saying. And then he says this, as the antidote. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So I really uh, believe that we live out what we believe and think, and believing and thinking well is really the first order of discipleship. For example, if you really believe that the gospel is that Jesus has died for us and he calls us to surrender to him as Lord, that that's the gospel. I believe in you, I trust you, and I follow you. In the words of Matthew Bates, I'm giving my allegiance to you, King Jesus. That's what I'm called to do. If you believe that gospel, that's very different than will you just pray a prayer and make a deal with God right now. So thinking well is super important. I hope that helps our... I really enjoy using, uh, I love metaphor. And kind of the ultimate metaphor is be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. And I think to take, take something like that and say, okay, I am to think as carefully and critically as the devil himself, yet I'm to be as pure as the Holy Spirit. And to take a take a metaphor that like and try to live by that metaphor, try to allow that to influence the way I think, and to put those a metaphor puts two opposite things together, and like a super collider puts them, and then the meanings that come out of that we can reflect on, and chain that out in so many ways, and it really helps me to take, you know, like the John fifteen to, to take scripture like that and try to engage my mind prayerfully and allowing meaning to come from that and for me it often happens best when I can experience some time of just quiet and I'm able to just kind of ruminate and reflect and and sort of meditate on an image or a metaphor from scripture but try to engage my mind with that along with, with my my heart and metaphors helpful for that because it just it just it blows your mind and just none of the categories work quite the same after you begin to experience the the atomic reaction that happens from from the word it's alive active powerful Uh, let me move on to a a little different topic if we could Um, we're hearing a lot at the uh, discipleship.org and other places today about disciple-making movements. And so I'd like to kind of think together about that for a little bit. What is a disciple-making movement? And uh, and uh, I'll, I'll kind of maybe, a, if I can, toss this one to you first, 
and then have you come back and react and maybe if you could give us some examples sure. of that as well. So what is the disciple making movement? Well, I think we've already heard quite a bit about it in our introductions, um, you know, as, as we had Jim Putnam and others um, speaking to this, but obviously I think that it's um, you being a disciple of Jesus, an authentic disciple of Jesus, which necessarily entails um, spreading that good news to others through discipling. Um, so I think that it's simple but not simplistic, right? Um, and um, that a disciple-making movement primarily um, is one that is going to bring together um, a proper understanding of what Jesus is calling us to in terms of the head level, right? But then um, putting that in action with the feet, the hands, the heart, uh, and marrying that to, to uh, an evangelistic effort that's integrated with salvation, right? That it isn't like sort of separate. So, you know, we have salvation here and we have discipleship over here and never the two meet. But it's going to be integrative. Bobby, can you uh, reflect on that and give yeah. some examples? Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's talk about a disciple-making movement in your life in your church, and then uh, beyond the local church. So uh, the most important disciple-making movement is the one that you start uh, from your life. And it might be uh, in the coffee shop where you close to where you work, or it might be in your home. Uh, my wife's standing at the back, and she's got a little disciple-making movement uh, going on at our house uh, on Sunday mornings where Cindy wants to be a disciple who makes disciples, and she's got some ladies uh, I usually get out of the house pretty early most Sundays. Sometimes she tells me, you got to get out of the house. Uh, <clears throat> get to church early because uh, she's got three women that are coming over and they're, uh, they have a movement going on. And the movement is they're helping each other to uh, trust and follow Jesus. They're looking at scripture. They're praying. They're talking about life on life. They're crying together. They're loving each other. And uh, <clears throat> her disciple-making movement shows itself up. I can just tell the affection in her heart for these women as she hears their story and as she's trying to encourage them to follow Jesus. So the most important disciple-making movement is always the one that we're involved with. And if, by the way, if we're here and we're saying, this is all new to me and uh, I'm not sure about it, I just want to encourage you to get in the game. Uh, pick up something like the Disciple-Maker's Handbook that gives you some guidance or all the other resources that are here and uh, um, the best way to get doing it is to get doing it as best you can because you've got the promise of Jesus who said uh, that when you're making disciples, he's with you always to. So uh, we have his promise that he's with us. So that's an important disciple-making movement. And candidly, for everybody who can hear my voice, that's the most important disciple-making movement, the one you're involved in. Okay, now let's talk about churches. Uh, in our churches, if we can facilitate disciple-making movements in our church, I think it's very, very important. Uh, and so that's going to involve some key elements. The first and foremost is those who are church leaders or those who lead ministries. We've got to be what we want other people to be, right? Uh, the old expression, uh, who you are thunders so loud, it drowns out your words can often uh, be heard. And uh, so as we're making disciples ourselves, we want to set up a church culture where that becomes the norm. Now that's easier said than done, uh, but that's a, uh, the more we can have a disciple-making movement within our church, again, that's the second frontier that really honors God 
when the local church goes back to the core mission of making disciples. So in terms of theology, if I can just say this, Tony, I think one of the first most important moves for church leaders is you've got to become convinced that making disciples of Jesus is the core mission of the church. And uh, the reason I'm bringing that up again is we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, right? And so uh, I want to tell you uh, a lot of people that I know the journey they had to first go through is in their minds of becoming convicted, first of all, that I've got to be a disciple who makes disciples. Like that has to get to the point where to, to not do that would be sin. It won't last unless it becomes for you. And I'm not saying it is for everyone. But you know, the Bible says, he who knows to do good and doesn't do it, for him it is. And when we really get God's heart, um, we have to do it. Okay? Then secondly, uh, there's a paradigm of of church out there. There's actually probably lots of paradigms of church. Uh, I came to know Christ in a tradition um, where they really emphasize we want to follow the church of the Bible. And so the mission ended up being, let's do church the way they did it in the Bible. Well, that's not really the mission of the church, is to do church. Now, they were good-hearted men and women who lived in a culture where you could assume a lot of things uh, that we can't assume anymore today. So I just want to challenge you to do a Bible study. I would recommend Kevin DeYoung's book, What is the Mission of the Church?, uh, I wrote a little ebook that you can download for free on discipleship.org. Uh, discipleship is the core mission of the church. And then Jim Putman and I tried to describe the practical implications of that in the book Disciple Shift, which talks about five shifts. But it's all built around the presupposition, at least my conviction, that disciple making is the core mission of the local church. Uh, uh, is worship important? Yes. We want to worship God the way Jesus did, and the way Jesus teaches us. Is ministry important to God? Yeah, but we want to do ministry the way Jesus did. And ultimately, when you keep pressing it, what does everything in the Bible lead back to? We want to see God and love God in the way of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what is that? That's discipleship. So I believe that's the core mission of the church. And so I want my church as best I can and as best the people will follow me and as best God grants me the ability that I create a disciple-making movement in our church. And then I want to spread that to other churches all around the globe. Let me just say this because this is how the word is typically being used today. Disciple-making movements are actually movements, sometimes they're, uh, they can be delineated as they're different in style in different places, but they're uh, replicating movements of disciple-making. Uh, unfortunately, uh, not very many of them in North America, but in places like Africa and China and India, uh, where there, there's this spontaneous almost. What's happened is the intentional DNA of disciple-making has become so embedded in people and churches that it's just viral. It's self-replicating. And that's glory land to me. So I'll just tell you one story of one disciple-making movement leader that uh, uh, God uh, granted us favor with him, and he's coming back to the forum we're doing next year. His name's Shadonke Johnson. 
And 10 years ago, he was persuaded to uh, uh, start a movement, uh, which of course first started with him, uh, of discovery Bible studies. So he's in Sierra Leone, Africa, and uh, he has a lot of relationships with Muslims 10 years ago. And so he developed this uh, method of making disciples. And I'll describe it succinctly because I feel like I'm already going on too long here, but it's worth it for me to describe it to you. Um, They start off by praying for a village. So you might think of a community here. And they fast and pray for the village extensively, deeply. And then they do little sojourns little connections, little trial balloons, little sticking their foot in the water. And they're praying for a person of peace. When God provides them with a person of peace, it opens a door of receptivity in that community. Now, in addition to praying for the village and seeing if there's persons of peace, they've been finding ways to serve the community. No strings attached. And so what happens then is uh, following this disciple-making method uh, built on a foundation of prayer, finding persons of peace. The persons of peace are people um, who just have natural connectivity. They're receptive to the gospel. They have natural connectivity. Cornelius, for example, would be an example uh, in the Bible. Jesus talks about this. By the way, Alex Absalom did a e-book called Viral Gospel. If you Google it, Uh, it'll tell you a little bit more about persons of peace. But what happens then is they go into the village, and uh, many of these, uh, these are Muslim villages. They don't know the Bible, of course, and they just start telling the stories of the Bible. And they teach the people at the end, uh, what did you hear in this story that somebody else needs to hear? And what did you hear that you need to obey? So they've been doing that in Sierra Leone for 10 years. They have converted 60,000 Muslims. That's a disciple-making movement. So what's holding us back here? Ask Matthew Bates that. (laughs) I do think... um, Yeah, theology matters, and I do think that is one thing that has certainly held us back. Um, I think that the gospel that we preach is um, oftentimes not accord- not in perfect accordance, at least, with uh, the gospel as we find it in Scripture. And that disconnect, uh, disconnect on the level of what faith means and what it means to respond to the gospel, all of those things are holding us back. Um, yeah, so I think that I think that we need to build a stronger foundation, um, and that we need to get a little more precise about the gospel and see where it is that the gospel um, that we've been preaching is um, certainly it's not that people haven't been getting saved through it or that there hasn't been genuine fruit through it, right? But um, the idea of making a one-time decision and that being sort of sealing the deal and it's all done and there's nothing left to salvation, there's something deeply problematic with that model that we need to, we need to really reconstruct, I think. 
So uh, I'm, I'm deeply invested in that conversation as um, that's really on my heart. And in the next session, I don't know, I don't know how much of that to do right now as I'm going to get into it in, 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 in nitty-gritty detail in the next session. Um, so um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll stop there. But some of these other questions might lead us into it a little bit. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to have you reflect, if you would, a little bit on, on kind of a, a little, little, can take this a little different direction. <clears throat> I know you've done a lot of thinking about the Trinity and the doctrine of the Trinity. And so many times when we think about doctrines like this or uh, points of theology, we think, well, what, what does it really have to do with life? What does that have to do with things like my identity as a disciple maker or as a believer? And I was wondering if, if you could just take a little bit of time and reflect with us on what the doctrine of the Trinity has to teach us or inform us about what it means to be a disciple maker. That's a great question. I'm, I'm fascinated by sort of foundational issues in terms of Christian theology. So I've done work on um, the Trinity, work on salvation theory. I'm doing work on Christology or the doctrine of Jesus as a scholar. These are the things that um, both delight my heart and tickle my brain. Um, but I suppose in, in terms of what I, why it matters for disciple-making, the doctrine of the Trinity, it seems sort of abstract, right? Um, let's put it this way, as frankly as we can. There is no gospel without the Trinity. Um, there's no gospel without the Trinity. And um, I think that the reason we think that may not be true is because the gospel has gotten reduced down to believe Jesus died for my sins. And that's the gospel for people. Um, notice there's no father uh, and no, no spirit in that story, right? Just believe Jesus died for your sins. Um, and it's just Jesus. It's not actually Jesus Christ. Uh, and the Christ part is oftentimes just thought of as Jesus' last name, as if it's like first name Jesus, last name Christ. It's not that at all, right? The Christ part is a title. It means the Messiah, the King. Uh, when we talk about uh, the saving function of Jesus, it's connected somehow to his kingship. How? Right? Um, but anyway, to, to back up and to blow that picture up on sort of the large scale of the Trinity, uh, the, the the gospel begins properly understood, I think, with the Father sending the Son. The incarnation is really the start of the gospel. It's the Father who sends the Son to become incarnate and to be God in our midst so we can see him and we can experience him and we can know what God is like. That's the beginning of the good news properly understood. And so it says the Father sends the Son. And then to sort of jump, the, there's, there's more we could say about the gospel in between, but to sort of jump to the climax of the gospel... Uh, it's that, that Jesus becomes the king and is enthroned at the right hand of God. And what does he do? Pours out the Spirit. Right? That's what he does. sends the Spirit. Uh, so Pentecost is really the, that's really the culmination of the gospel. Why? So that the obedience of, uh, the obedience of, of faith right, among the nations can transpire. Uh, and it's really the sending of the Spirit that allows the obedience of, of faith. Uh, and that's what Paul says the gospel is actually purposed toward. So we see that the gospel itself is like deeply, deeply Trinitarian in its structure. And that we, if we don't get uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, right, and how the three persons all are involved, um, there's no gospel and there's no disciple-making movement, period. That is awesome. <laughs> I remember uh, I, I teach a class on prayer, and I remember I was uh, working with the students on um, 
praying the Lord's Prayer to the place where it becomes my prayer. Yeah. And uh, I happened to find myself alone. Uh, my wife was uh, across the ocean, uh, and I was back in the States traveling, and I was prepping for this class, and I was trying to pray the Lord's Prayer. And um, we, had, we had just had our third miscarriage, and I began to think about, what if, what if there are no children in my life? And I was, like I said, I was just very alone at that time. And my, uh, so I was kind of feeling sorry for myself and all that. And yet I thought, okay, I got to get back to my assignment here and, and start praying. And um, for the first time ever, and I remember it like it was yesterday, our Father. And I don't know, it, it's like my heart broke up open. For the first time in my life, I realized that this was this was our prayer and Father. And then it was like, but how can the God of Sinai be the same kind of person who kissed me goodnight when I was a little boy? And I couldn't I couldn't reconcile those two things in my head. It was just like, what what is our Father, and who's the hour? And I said, with tears streaming down my cheek, I said, how can you be that? And it wasn't an audible voice, but it was <coughs> almost. And it said, because I will it to be so. And it was when I needed it the most, and I think I was ready, and my heart broke open that I began to catch a, a glimpse of what the, the, the Trinity really meant to me. It was, it's about family, a father, you know, sending a son, sending a spirit, so that I could go home. And I'm not alone. And I guess I can't think of hardly anything I would be willing to go to a cross for except family. And so somehow this Trinity thing started becoming more like family, but as I was something about that prayer, prayer you know, just... Became very real to you. Personally. It became very real to me. Bobby. Yeah, let, let me. Uh, I'd like to um, say something about what Matthew just said, uh, which was really good. Um, and I want to come back to um, the gospel we preach, the Jesus we uphold, and the kind of faith we enjoin or that we teach to people. Um, actually, before I say something about those three, can I just say something to all of us who are church leaders? who are already persuaded of the biblical gospel and the biblical Jesus and biblical faith. I think the biggest reason why we don't have a disciple-making movement, and I don't mean this in a try-harder way, but I don't think we pray enough. I think it's spiritual warfare, and what I see uh, in history is the people God used the most 
they they had intimacy. It, it came out of intimacy with God, typically. And in disciple making movements, there's a real emphasis on prayer. And uh, I say that not as a, hey, I'm doing it great because I'm not. But I I do aspire to that, and I really believe that's more important than we think. I think the spiritual world that the Bible describes is really real. And I think that there are spiritual strongholds and dominions. And uh, C.S. Lewis once said, if you look at the Bible, our world is really more like uh, the battlefield of a civil war. And I think spiritually that's more true than we realize. But having said that, uh, in the whole thing of theology matters, uh, if we can look at the concept of the gospel, if you take a, a passage like 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul describes really the summary gospel, um, but it's actually not the summary gospel that people reduce it to. There's a couple of things I just want to, because I'm encouraging you to think through the gospel you preach. Scott McKnight wrote a book called The King Jesus Gospel. If you haven't read that book, I commend it to you to help you to think through this. And I just want to point a couple of things out of the summary description in 1 Corinthians 15 that right away ought to tweak us around what Matthew was saying. The first thing is when Paul says uh, that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. The Scripture there is not the New Testament, right? The New Testament has not yet been written. So there's a backstory, and it's called the Old Testament. And his name uh, in the first century, uh, the equivalent of first name, last name, would have been Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. Jesus Christ is Messiah. And we've gotten so used to the word Christ that we don't think it's Messiah. He's Jesus the Messiah. Well, the Messiah only makes sense at all is if there's an Old Testament background to what the Messiah is. And so it harkens us back to the promise God gave to David that one of his descendants would be the Messiah. Psalm 89, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, Ezekiel 34 through 36 that there would be a shepherd amongst the people watching over them who would be the Lord. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's Isaiah 11. There's all that stuff that Paul's assuming you know when he says Christ, Messiah, Messiah died for our sins according to Scripture. That's why the backstory, the Father sent the Son who is the Messiah the long-promised Messiah. And the storyline of the Messiah out of the Old Testament is he's going to be the conquering king. He is our king who will renew creation, reconcile all things in the new heaven and new earth, and his kingdom came. We live in that kingdom, not just then and there, but here and now. Mm -hmm. So that's a much broader gospel. Does that make sense? If we're serving a Jewish... Messiah. Messiah, I am. If we're serving a Jewish Messiah, then what are we getting wrong in doing Latin and Greek categories <coughs> for theology? Hmm. I mean, or, or put it another way, what implications does that have for changing us if we're following a Jewish a Messiah? Jew? 
I'm gonna Changing refer that one to Matthew again. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, there's obviously very famous distinctions between the Greek and the Hebrew world. Um, uh, one of the more famous ones would be the degree of abstraction, you know, in Greek uh, thinking. Um, and some people have even argued that the doctrine of the Trinity, as it emerges, you know, partly emerges purely because we were seeing a shift from Hebrew culture to, you know, the Greek culture. This is the, the very famous thesis of Adolf von Harnack that was, I think, subsequently refuted as there are better ideas out there. Um, but there's some truth to the idea that um, the, the Greeks were much more speculative, um, so that uh, the idea is, of course, that you, um, you want to contemplate the form of the truth, right, and uh, the, the form of the thing. Uh, and so you have to sort of ascend from the created order in order to connect to the, the Platonic form, and that's where you find the truth. It's, it's out in the form, right? It's not in the embodied creation. Aristotle renuances some of that for us, right? Um, but uh, the Platonic philosophy was really the philosophy of, um, of the church uh, really up until the time of Thomas Aquinas. Uh, it really does dominate. Um, so it is true that there is some reinterpretation in Greek categories that um, and Latin categories that I think um, it's not that they're not capable of, of being good vehicles for the gospel and they are important but I do think that it moves us away from incarnation and from embodiment um, you, can, you, can use, you can do those things in Greek um, but it, it tends to move the emphasis elsewhere um, and I think that one of the things we do um, well to do is to think about the, the Jewish nature of Jesus' Messiah is to think about um, ourselves as creatures that it is good, right, uh, that is spoken over creation, it is tov tov, very good, uh, spoken over humanity, um, and that, uh, um, that we don't need to leave behind um, the created order in order to go find truth somewhere else. Like, we, where are we going to find it best? If we want to know what God is most like, um, well, we actually have the image of God all around us, right? Um, we, we, look, we, look to, we look around, right? Uh, we're actually more likely to find God by looking at the person right next to us uh, than we are by doing some sort of abstract thing that will take us away from creation. Right? There's an, an incarnational dimension to, you know, obviously Jesus being the, the paradigm example of the ultimate image and the premier image, uh, and the one who's the prototype that ultimately all the rest of humanity is modeled on is the perfect image and the flawless one. But even uh, us and our distorted image bearing, right? that's still... Uh, uh, a very powerful way to know and connect with um, with who God really is, um, and so I think that the Jewish categories help move us um, to the goodness of creation and help us to to not think about the final goal of salvation as some sort of disembodied bliss, right? But of God actually remaking the heaven and the earth and caring enough about us and our phys- physicality, right, to want to renew us even in our physicalness, right, so that we are embodied creatures alongside. Um, Jesus, who is also embodied, worshiping God, um, the Father, and the Spirit. So that's that's where I would go with it. Yeah, let me let me if I can uh, tag tag onto that, Tony. Um, just to to give uh, probably overly simplistic categories, but I find personally helpful. Uh, in more of a, a Greek idea, it's I believe, therefore I do, or uh, my my internal stuff uh, drives the external stuff. Jewish people weren't as much like that. Uh, and uh, Matthew is encouraging us, ancient people weren't as much like that, not just Jewish people. A lot of times you know what you believe by what you do. You do it. Oh, now I understand. 
uh, it's the, uh, let me give you a, a, a common example. <clears throat> Do you uh, sometimes struggle with, I should do this, but I don't feel like doing it. Anybody ever done that? It's called like working out or brushing your teeth, right? But then you just do it, and then you feel, oh, that's so good that I did that. I feel good about myself that I did that. Well, what happened? Doing led to believing and thinking and feeling. And much more of the Bible is that way. Then I, I believe it first, and then I do it. That's, I may be oversimplifying, no. Well, um, look at the commission. Yeah. Teaching them. To know all this doctrine. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> to obey all my teachings. Uh, let me, uh, Matthew is also uh, pointing out something that's, uh, I think, really important in terms of our conception of where we're going. So the idea is that in oftentimes <clears throat> in uh, church history, it's this, uh, you know, on clouds with angels with harps like sounds totally boring and I don't want to go there like that's that's where we're going right whereas the biblical vision is it's a renewed heaven a new heaven and new earth bodily existence all things are renewed God's in original intention the the renewal of all creation to the way he intended it uh, is a much better vision and the sense that we're participating in a kingdom now that has foretastes of that kingdom then that the kingdom has been inaugurated we're living in it um, and just uh, by the way if you're wanting I feel like I'm giving all these books up but hey this is the theology track so I get to do that <laughs> yeah. N.T. Wright's book Surprised by Hope is a great read on that topic if we're part of, of restoring all creation to God, the Father, through the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit, then why disciple-making to do that? I mean, because it's bodily? Or, I mean, why, yeah. why would... If Jesus is yeah. as brilliant as Willard and the rest of us think he is, why this way? So this is a really good question, and I I'll, I just want to say uh, I I'm working on this this uh, answering this question. So I want to be careful not to come across of um, feeling like I have got it all handled. But I will tell you this: <clears throat> when you spend time in the New Testament, and you say, "Okay, the kingdom was inaugurated by Jesus." Romans 14 says the kingdom of God uh, is righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. Um, and then you see the teaching in the New Testament on the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I think that we start to participate more fully in the kingdom the more we are united with Christ in the transformation that his spirit brings to who we are and that disciple-making has as its ultimate goal the formation of Christ in us. And I think that the biggest hallmark of the kingdom reign of Jesus is when Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ, yet nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I think the biggest manifestation of the kingdom of God and the reign is the reign of the Spirit in a Christ-like 
human being until Jesus returns. To kind of revisit something we talked about earlier, then why prayer? I mean, what we all agree it's important and, and all of that, but why is prayer important to disciple making? Or is it? I'm going to get you to turn to Matthew again on that one. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that prayer is important for disciple-making. <coughs> Obviously, the intercession, um, you know, um, that God is gracious as we intercede for other people to answer our prayer. Um, and so I think that's the obvious component. I think the less obvious part is that our prayers also involve thanksgiving and praise to God and the, the worship that we render. Um, if we're gazing on a true image of God, that's transformative for us. Um, so we're, it's necessary for us to pray both for the sake of those who, who are in need of, of Christ and in need of deliverance, but we ourselves are perpetually, right? We need to be remade into the image of Jesus so that we can be um, as if we are Jesus to these people um, so that they can actually have an encounter with the true living God through us, even in our brokenness, right? Um, so prayer um, is important as we express our deep gratitude to God, we reflect on who God is. So much of our prayer, a good prayer, I think, involves us remembering God's goodness to us, giving thanks to him uh, for all that he provides, right? And as we reflect on his justice, his mercy, all of his other qualities, we ourselves are changed. Um, and prayer is, I think, incredibly important for disciple-making um, because it transforms us, too. So new creation is going to happen, is going to be is going to be an outcome of prayer because it's transforming us we have dominion there's something about this process of yeah. of aligning whatever connections we have that is part of creating a new heaven and a new earth it's getting us ready the more we become like him, the more we want to be with him, and the more we uh, long for his return and the renewal of all things, except for the sake, like Paul says, except for the sake of those we love here who are left that we want to bring with us. I wanted to jump back to this um, teaching that, you know, that, that doing is actually you know, sometimes more important than believing or drives belief uh, to John um, 7. Uh, 17, well, actually going back to 16, Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's desire is to do his will, meaning God's will, he shall know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on, on my own authority. So how do we know whether Jesus' teaching is true? Um, well, we actually do it, right? Um, if you want to know whether or not um, this is in fact the truth, do it, he says, uh, and then you're going to find a confirmation coming, um, which is, I think, an interesting uh, place where we see Jesus saying something very similar. Right now we live in a world that is experiencing rapid change, competing worldviews. Are people really interested in disciple making? I'll take that one. <laughs> um, so I think, uh, I'm a Canadian, uh, I did not uh, move here until I was 36. And so my formative thinking and everything, uh, and I grew up in a non-Christian family in a non, uh, a culture that had become non-Christian. Um, for example, when I was a child, 
uh, 60% of Canadians actually went to church, a higher percentage at that time than in the U.S. Uh, now it's, it's radically changed. Uh, Ten years ago, the stats in the U.S. were 43% of Americans claimed to go to church. We know that they, uh, everybody overstated it. It was actually around 17%. But, you know, people always say they go to church more than they actually do. If you've been a, in ministry, you know that's true, right? <laughs> I meet people in the marketplace, they go, oh, yeah, I'm a member of your church. I'm thinking, I've never seen you before. <laughs> you may, maybe you came once or twice. Um, but um, what's happened is that in Canada, uh, if you believe in Jesus, to, many, to most Canadians, you're a weirdo. Okay? And uh, so what it's required is the faith that is uh, strong is a deep-rooted, they work through the tough issues, and they believe because they believe. And uh, it's, it's been refined by the fire. Uh, and if we were to talk to people in, uh, Tony works in Eastern Europe with TCM. By the, by the way, before we end, I want to say a word about TCM. Okay, Tony? Um, but uh, Tony can tell you stories of people in the Soviet Union and the sacrifices they made to follow Jesus. Or somebody from Pakistan uh, or India. I mean, whoa. you got to think clearly and believe it's really true if you're going to follow it. What I see happening in North America today is there is a meltdown in Christian belief in churches. Uh, Christians don't know their Bibles the way they did 10 years ago. And there's so much pressure, and I speak as a senior pastor, there is so much pressure to, to keep the crowds coming, to make them feel good, to help them to see their best life now, which may not be the life of Jesus. And what happens is there are certain parts of the Bible people are not preaching anymore. I mean, I can just tell you today when you get up and you talk about hell, for example, it's like everybody's saying, oh, please don't say too much about that. We're going to be embarrassed. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because that's intolerant, judgmental, and non-inclusive. And so what's happening is that our churches, we're creating a culture of people who only uh, gravitate to, to teachings where people say what their itching ears want to hear. And I, I don't like saying that, and I, I think there's exceptions to that. There are good exceptions to that. But I'm just saying postmodernism is undermining far more than we think. And it's creating a, I feel, I like, don't hurt my feelings. And so when we start talking about the real Jesus and the real gospel and being real disciples, uh, it requires some tough-mindedness. And that's what Jim was getting at by the way, in the first session. It's just an analysis of this is the situation we find ourselves in. And so I just think it's super important that we think well, we pray hard, we get the gospel right, Jesus right, and what it is to have faith in him, and then we do all we can to pray for and encourage and ask everybody to be a disciple first and make disciples. And uh, I think that that is the first and foremost job of the church, of parents, uh, of everybody who claims the name of Jesus today. And the battle is significant, and it's more significant than people realize. There's much more eroding going on. There's much more uh, preachers pandering to people 
with progressive Christianity. And nobody's calling it out because you don't want to be judgmental, intolerant, or non-inclusive. And we just have to think hard, be prayerful, and be bold. That's, that's what I think. One of the greatest reminders that I have is, is we have about 130 students who come from the stand countries. And I'm always curious as to why someone would leave Islam to become a believer in Jesus. Do you know what he means when he says Istan countries? Yeah, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan. And almost to a person, they give you the same answer. In Islam, you have no idea where you stand with Allah. And you're in a shame-based culture. And almost to a person, they'll say, Brother Tony, I don't have to die in a jihad. I know I have a father who actually sent a son to die for me. And my shame is gone now. And that person lost their family, their job. In some cases, they may have been put in prison or they're persecuted in other ways. And somehow, it's worth it to that person to just know that I now have a father who loves me. Mm -hmm. I'm part of a, fam a forever family. Mm -hmm. And there's something so deeply rooted, rooted in us that it clarifies our thinking. That's good, Tony. When we get that right. And I would say, shame on us if we ever take that simple core truth for granted yeah. Because that just cleanses the mind yeah. and the heart when we know whose we are and that we're beloved. It just does a lot to straighten out our theology. Well, the when fundamental our, issue is God so loved the world that he sent his son. We are loved. And I've been trying to you know, rally us to good thinking and all of these kinds of things. But let's not, never forget what Tony's saying. What wins us over to Jesus is God loves us. He loves me at my worst. He sent his son, and no matter who I am or what I've done, I'm loved, and uh, his arms are open to me. I just want to make sure we're honoring Jesus as we should and as the Bible teaches. Um, I know we just got two minutes left, so can I say something, Tony? Uh, I just want to tell you all about uh, TCM. This is He doesn't even ask me to do this or no, I'm going to do it. But I want you to know about TCM because what they are is they're an international seminary investing in people like he's talking about uh, with a, a thousand seminary students around the world, typically in very <coughs> poor countries. And they make it about disciple making and uh, they make it about theological education in the context of personal disciple making. And uh, what they're doing is a great thing that has broad influence around the world. And I'm really proud of you and proud of what you guys are doing. Thank I can't tell you how thrilled we are to connect with discipleship.org and all the people that you saw out there. All around the world, God is, God is at work. Something's afoot. Mm -hmm. We feel it. You sense it. There's just something going on. And to be together with those people, and we weren't there to promo our mission or to... 
Jesus' mission. We're, we're there to, to do that together. And if we will have unity, if we're not in competition, we're serving Him together. God can blow the top off of this thing. And we can change our culture. It can be done. But it's going to take all of us being on mission. But if we're doing it together, one heart, one mind, one spirit, God can bless it. And it's going to get the world's attention in, in the right way. Absolutely. And that's why I'm just so glad he's bringing people, resources, uh, people writing really good, crisp, well-researched, thoughtful books that get us focusing on what's right, our allegiance, and people starting organizations that are pulling us all together to, to uh, be about the Lord's mission. And so uh, I just want to thank all of you for coming and being part of this and being on mission together. We need each other. We need each other. So, God bless you. Thank you. I think we're out of time. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from TCM International Institute's track called Disciple Making Theology Matters at the National Disciple Making Forum. You'll find dozens of other great resources like this podcast at discipleship.org. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.